Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Well, good morning, Grace. I'm glad you could join us today. We're going to look at the last of our series on the covenants. We're going to look at how the Bible is not a bunch of little stories. It is one holy story. I'm very excited about that because we're going to survey a lot of the the covenants we've looked through today. I want you to see how all the small pieces fit together like a puzzle to paint a very beautiful picture, a story of amazing grace. It begins at the beginning with one holy, what, couple, where it says, God says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he made man and woman, Adam and Eve, to rule the garden like a king and a queen. And they would walk with God in the cool of the evening. They had absolute intimacy with him. They were made to be with him. They belonged to him. They did what they could not undo. They ate from the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is the entrance of what's called original sin, the fall of man, total depravity. And now... Man is death. Death rules in men's life. And so the promise that's made to Adam in the Adamic covenant is that God would send a descendant of Eve, and there would be a fight to death, and the serpent would bite his heel, but the promised one would crush the head of the curse of Satan. Right? And that's the promise that was made. And... And, but, but death is what we do. The firstborn, Cain, murders his little brother and plants his dead body in the soil, and it gives fruit to violence. And violence expands across the world where we end up with the Noahic covenant, the, Noah, the covenant to Noah, one holy family. But it starts in Genesis chapter 6. And the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth that he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. And the Lord was sorry and he grieved that he put man on the earth. It broke his heart. But there was this one family, one holy family, Noah. The only cure was going to be a catastrophic flood, and after the flood subsided, he gave Noah a covenant. He said, Noah, I will never judge the earth that way again, and I will put government, I will put the sword in the hand of government to keep the violence curtailed somewhat. And then God, in his plan of amazing grace, one holy story, chose right, one holy tribe. He chose because he can choose. He chooses this one man, Adam, or Abraham. And he goes to Abraham, and he gives him these great, wonderful promises. And he says that I will give you more descendants than that there are stars in the sky or grains of sand on the beach, and they will become a great nation. And that great nation will occupy vast and strategic land. And then one of the descendants from you, Abraham, will be a blessing to all the world. Now, Abraham believed that, and that was a one-way, unconditional covenant or promise that was made to Abraham, and Abraham believed that, and that belief in that promise that God would deliver that someday 
made him a believer. That's what it means to be a believer. He's the father of faith. Another good example of how he, uh, Abraham is a father of faith is I, I said that he would be the father of a nation, more descendants than the stars in the sky. Um, they couldn't have children. And, and, and so the whole, the whole story of Abraham is a metaphor to what salvation is because he, he gets a son, Isaac, but it is a miraculous gift of God. And God arranges that whole story so that from this point forward, everyone will know that, that this birth, this birth, right, was a miraculous gift from God. To be born again will be a miraculous gift from God. Well, again, we, for every covenant, there's a way to fail. And it wasn't, the, the tribe didn't stay holy. It didn't say set apart. They were, they were, they were losing their identity. And so God put them in Egypt to form one holy nation. The Egyptians would keep them separate. They hated foreigners. And so they stayed in Egypt for 400 years, and they became a nation in Egypt, and they were set free from Egypt by the power of God. They saw God's miraculous works, and God gives them at Mount Sinai a covenant, a covenant to Moses for one holy nation. He gives them a constitution, and he gives them a tabernacle. He gives them the law, and then he gives them a way to reconcile or atone for the times when they break the law. He gives them slabs of stone with holy words, the ten words, and then they promise they'll always keep them. He gives them a sacrificial system to slaughter animals to pay the interest when they don't. I've told you. For every covenant that God makes with the people, the people come up with new ways of breaking it. This covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, was conditional. It, was, it went like this. If, if you stay close to me, I will provide and protect you. But if you don't, if you disobey me, you reject me, you doubt me, you will be helpless and alone in a very hostile world. And, and let me just show you how this works. They were supposed to stay close to God and trust God. And, and again, just it's for illustrative purposes, but in, in, in Numbers, for example, God is right there with them. His, their pre, his presence is obvious to them, and yet they say this, we've been in this desert. Did you take us to the desert to, to kill us all? Were there not enough um, graves in Egypt for us? And there's nothing to eat. We're tired of this manna. And because of their complaint and because they question whether God is good or not, Serpents, snakes come out from underneath all the rocks and they start biting the people of Israel. And they're dying from the venom. And they say, we have sinned against God because we have rejected his provisions and doubted his goodness. Moses, please appeal to him and save us. And God tells Moses this story. He says, look, make a bronze serpent, right? Make a serpent out of bronze and put it on a giant post and hold it up high. And tell the people, if they stare at that, if they gaze at that snake high on that post, they will be saved. And the people did. And they, they were saved from the venom. Those who, those who looked were saved from the venom and told the story of their sin, but God's provision to get them out of that. That's just, again, I just wanted to tell you a story that would help you understand the consistency 
of mankind and their failure. We have, a, we have a nation, a covenant to one holy nation, and then the high point, no doubt, the high point, well, I guess it's, it's somewhat debatable, the high, I believe the high point of the nation is when there is one holy kingdom established in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6 and 7, and now we have a, a very humble king, David, you might know the story of King David, and he's humble before God, and he wants to be, it's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, right? The promise that there would be a king in his family line. And most of the world around him, it's somewhat fulfilled, that would be blessed because of him. And they are a nation, and they occupy the land. It is the fulfillment in many respects of the Mosaic covenant, because David, in his humility, is keeping the country close to God, and God is providing provisions and protection. It's peaceful and bountiful both. God is with them. God, and then Moses, is, or I'm sorry, David says, I want God to live here. I want to build him a house. And he wants to build a temple, not a tabernacle made of tent, but a temple for the Ark of the Covenant so the presence of God would be in the holy city of Jerusalem. And God says to him, this is the covenant with David. He says, you try to build me a house and I say no, but I want to build you a house. And David is enveloped into and underneath the Abrahamic covenant. More detail is given to the Abrahamic covenant now with the covenant of David. It's unconditional, these aspects of it. The David now, when we talked about Abraham having a king someday, you're, you will be the father of many kings. And one of those kings will be blessing all of mankind, and he will reign forever. He will reign forever. So now we're getting more clues to how the story is going, that there would be, uh, again, the fulfillment, the, hape, the hope of Abraham, that there would be a land, a nation, and a blessing for eternity. The Mosaic Covenant, the people, the people of God would stay close to God, and he would provide and protect them. It was the humility of David, it was the humility of David that was the instrument of success for him. But David joins the lineage of the damned. And this is the pivot point, in my opinion, in my belief, of the Old Testament. Because our highest hope was in this king. And what's frightening in this part of the story is, if David could fall to such depths, then what about the rest of us? If he couldn't maintain his humility before God and his dependence upon God, then who can? The fear is in the realization that we can't fix this. There's, there's no hope for us because David was that hope. And, and <laughs> he's stealing another man's wife and he's murdering that husband. And so from there, it's this generational decline to a predictive circumstance where Israel is, is, is conquered and taken into captivity. And in the, in the depth of the darkness, when there was, there was no memory of God's blessings and God's promises, the weeping prophet comes, the weeping prophet, his name is Jeremiah, he says there will be a new covenant given. You guys are in exile. You're eating your own children. It, you don't think it could get any worse, and you think God has forgotten you. And he says this, Jeremiah says this in the new covenant. 
the, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, and I will not, it will not be like the covenant that I made to their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Verse 33, this is the covenant that I make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and no longer will my, they teach their neighbors or say to one another, do you know the Lord? Because they will know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. Ezekiel, another prophet during this time, puts it this way. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit in you, and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your old heart, the heart of stone, and give you a heart of flesh. And on that day, I will cleanse you from all of your sins. Now, we will look at that in just a few minutes, but I want you to see how dark it became. And these two little beacons of light, right? Jeremiah and Ezekiel says, listen, I, God promises, I will give you complete forgiveness. I will give you a new heart with the law written on that heart, a new spirit. It'll be different than the other commandments and covenants. And then finally, he says, I will have a new relationship with you. I will, you will be mine and I will be yours. Now, before we look at the details of that, I want you to answer, you know, kind of a basic question here. Think about this. Because now we're, we're finding ourselves at the end of the Older Testament. The problem is, is how, if all of mankind is bent, who can straighten us? If everyone is broken, who can put us back together? Do you see? There's, <laughs> there's no king to put Humpty Dumpty back together. If we are all fallen, how can we get up? And that's that 400-year pause between the last book called Malachi and the Older Testament and the New Testament because the New Testament starts with one holy Savior. And John writes it in a way to help you understand that we are starting over in a different way when he says, in the beginning. We've heard that before, but it's not Genesis, it's John. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. Emmanuel, God with us. Here we go again. He's coming into the city. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He lives the Old Testament. And so he is born in Bethlehem, the city where David, David's hometown, the great king, and listen, he was, he was born in such a special way. What about the curse? The curse that follows every single person, right? The, the um, total depravity, right? Original sin, the fall of man. How can Jesus be any different? Because Jesus, when he is born in Bethlehem, is, he is not the son of Joseph. He's the son of Mary. It sounds subtle. There's two genealogies in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? There's those biographies, those gospels. There's two genealogies. And one of them is following Jesus through David, through Mary, because he is the son of Mary, not the son of Joseph. It makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in life and death. And it makes for a great story. Okay. 
You've seen Lord of the Rings, right? You, because you're a Christian, <laughs> right? Okay. So, in the last one, in The Return of the King, right, the great witch king has dismounted his dragon, and he's going to kill the little hobbit, Mary. And he's pulling his sword, and he's going to kill the hobbit. And then someone steps in and says, I'll, if you touch him, I'll kill you. And the witch king says, laughs and says, kill me? No living man can kill me. And Erwin, Erwin of Rohan pulls off her helmet and says, I am no man. You gaze upon a woman. And she stabs him in the face with that sword. <laughs> yeah. It's a better story than that. So when the curse, when we talk about the curse, we're talking about it in the seed. We've been talking about the seed for weeks now. It is the seed of Adam where we get our curse. And Jesus is like, I am no son of, of Adam. I am a son of Eve. It was Eve that got the promise that we would fight till death and he would bite my heel and I would crush his head. And I can do this because I have not inherited from Adam this curse. I am the second Adam. That's why Jesus is called the second Adam. And he is going to live what he's going to live and succeed what everyone else did and failed. He will be like Moses where he is chased out of his homeland because of a diabolical king that was fearful and killing all the early little boys, right? And so he fled to Egypt. Moses was put right in a raft because they were killing all the little boys. He was uh, tempted in the desert. His debutant, his coming out as an adult, was being baptized by John and then baptized by suffering. He goes out in the desert, desert and is without food for 40 days. And the question before him is, is God good? Will you stay close to him? Is he a provider? Is he a protector? And as Israel wandered for 40 years, he wanders 40 days and passes that test. You shall have no other gods before you. That's the story of the life of Jesus, is just living out the failures of Israel and the heroes of Israel. On the Last Supper, his, his, the night that he was betrayed, he takes, he's redoing the Passover meal, and he takes this one goblet that was added during, the 400, added during the 400 silent years for the new covenant, this new covenant we read about briefly, and he takes that and he says, this is my blood. This is the blood of the new covenant. And he goes from there and he goes to the garden in the cool of the evening when Adam used to walk with God and he is put on trial underneath a tree. Is God good? Will you let this cup pass? I'll take this cup and you'll still be a good God. He passes the test that Adam fails. And he carries our shame up that mountain on his back. He carries the wood that Isaac carried up Moriah, except there will be no other substitute. And when they crucify him and they splatter his blood, it is in the same formation as the blood spatters of the Passover lamb 
that you were to take and slaughter an innocent lamb and put its blood on the top and on the sides of your doors. It'll drop down where his feet are. And the earth shook, and he looked up to the sky to his father, and he said, It is finished. And when the ground had finished shaking, the temple, in the temple, there's a giant curtain that's thick and not transparent, and it was torn from the top to the bottom because it was finished. That curtain that separated the holy of holies from the totally depraved was now torn by God and opened up. We could see his face and live. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the five offerings and the seven feasts, and all the arrows are pointing to him. The resurrection, that is proof that it was not a fairy tale. It is a real story. It was premeditated in the beginning, and it is fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ and ultimately upon his return. That's a great story. Why was it done this way? Why did, why, why do it? Right, I mean, just strategically, why do it this way? It's about the nature of covenant. We talked about this last week in a different way, but I'll bring up the main points the covenant is law and love because love is freest when there's a law. Law binds us so that we can love free, even recklessly. And, and that's, what, that's how God always relates to his people. He relates in covenants with Adam and Noah and Abraham and the nation of Israel and David and with us with the new covenant. It is love, it is law. It is law, it is love. And if you look at Moses, the covenant with Moses that's often contrasted to, Moses is given law and love. He is given the, the, the slab, the tablets, the two stones, the ten words, and says, do these, you're obliged, but you won't. That's the law, but you won't. And so we will give you a sacrificial system to pay your interest down. The, the blood of these animals will cover God's eyes from your sins for a time being. You'll have to repeat this over and over again. But I, God provides the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, and then later the temple, so that there will be a relationship. So he deals with us this way because there's law and then there's love. But Israel feel, fails both of these. They don't do the law, and they just give up on the ritual system. They quit doing it. They quit honoring it. And so God comes in with a new covenant, starts all over again, and, we're, and doing new things differently, but it's law and love again. The law of God is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. He completed the law. He, again, I'm telling you the story because he did the things what Israel couldn't do. He did all the requirements of God. He was innocent. The love of, that was the law of it. And the love of it is the fact that he became the sacrificial lamb for us. He became the, he became the thing that, that provided for us because the blood of bulls and rams do not pay for human sin. And so the, the, the story is the fullness of the meaning of covenant, covenant obligations with the law and covenant love with the provision of a sacrifice. For God so loved the world that he promised to give his, his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. 
He sent his son in the world that other people would have eternal life. Whoever believes in him right, will live forever. Why did he send Jesus? Could there be another way than to put his own son on a cross? If we can have righteousness, listen carefully. If we can have righteousness outside of faith in the gift of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, then Jesus died needlessly. If we can have intimacy with God and have enjoyment with him, covenant love with him, right? Unconditional covenant love with him. If you can have that any other way than besides Jesus Christ coming, dying, and raised from the dead to prove, then he did it needlessly. If you can earn your way to heaven, then why did Jesus die? What kind of God is that, by the way? Oh, you can get to me this way, but I'm going to send my son anyway because I, what? That's not a loving God. Let's talk about the new covenant. This is what the new covenant is. This is what we experience. Israel, we're, we're holding Israel's seat for this, right? You've seen that like in the Academy Awards. This is the promise that's made to them, but, you know, when some people get up and leave, we get to hold their seats warm, and we're just kind of buying time for a while for them. We enjoy this new covenant that was given to Israel. We're stealing it for just a second. They'll get it back later, but here's what you get. You get three gifts, a whole, the three gifts, a whole new kind of forgiveness, the gift of a whole new kind of, of heart, and the gift of a whole new kind of relationship, a belonging, a whole new kind of belonging. Let's look at the passages now in, in Jeremiah chapter 31. The first one is the gift of forgiveness, the whole new kind of forgiveness. It says, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. So, Jesus provides that for us. That's why it says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a wonderful sentence to memorize. Because of the new covenant, because Jesus is the lamb, a human being is the lamb that was perfect, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It says later on, it says that we now have peace with God through Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a new kind of forgiveness. It's not a temporal forgiveness that's paying the interest. It is the down payment principle. It is the principal payment paid off. It's a new kind of forgiveness. The new covenant also has a whole new gift of a kind of a heart. We get a whole new heart. Look what it says in Jeremiah 31, 33. It says, this covenant I will make the people of Israel after a time, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write it on their hearts. Ezekiel says it. I love what Ezekiel says. And I will give them a new heart and a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart a stone and give you a heart of flesh. The law becomes non-obligatory, but internally, intrinsically motivated from within. We still do the law. It says in one of the verses in John, uh, one of the last chapters uh, in the Bible, it says that we do the commandments of God, but they're not burdensome to us. Why? We have a new heart. Um, I think I have some time. Okay, you remember when you cleaned your room as a kid because you had to? Maybe because you wanted to eat? I don't know how you how it worked at your house. You know, you don't clean your room, you don't eat. You don't mow the lawn, you don't eat. Okay, let's just pretend it's that way, the way it should be. Okay, let's just pretend that. <laughs> and then something happens to you. You grow up, you go somewhere, you leave the house, something happens, right? And then you come back and you make your bed, not because so that you will eat, 
but because you realize I have a newfound appreciation for my parents? It's not an obligation. It's an intrinsic love. Love will have you doing things the law could never get you to do. There's so much more power in love than duty. There's so much more power in love than, than discipline. And so the new covenant is I will give you a new heart, a new spirit. The law will be written on your heart, and you will desire to obey. And so kind of this contradiction between what's ob- obliged to us, what's duty-bound, and what we love to do is combined. John Newton writes it this way in a, in a hymn. He says, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen this beauty in Jesus Christ, are joined to part no more. They're joined to part no more. Our pleasure and our duty are one thing now. I love God. How can I serve you? We have a new kind of forgiveness. It's complete. It's not repeated year after year. We have a new kind of heart a new kind of law that's written on our hearts and our our desire is to be motivated by love. And then finally, we have a new type, a new kind of relationship, a new type of belonging. Look, verse 33 again. Uh, It says, And this covenant um, that I will make with my people of Israel after the time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Listen to how possessive that is. Listen to how loving and intimate that is. I am yours, and you are mine. There's a whole different kind of belonging. I know many of you that come to church are still in a place of duty. You, You still think that He's going to love you more or less by some of you know, your, your point keeping. But that's not the relationship he's talking about here. I am yours and you are mine. I have given you my own son. How will I not freely give you all things that you need? Why are we still talking like we're employees or employers? It's not that kind of relationship. Let me show you. How, how mind-expanding this phrase is, that, that I will be your God and you will be my people, that I am yours and you are mine. In the romantic book of married love in the Older Testament called Song of Solomon, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. It's the same phrase for the most part. We're married. How can I serve you? See, it's the giving up of your rights and responsibilities and desires and hopes because you want them to experience their dreams, their desires, their hopes in life. And so there's this this, whole different type of belonging to God now. I mean, the oceans, they roar for this sort of thing. How does this happen? How do you get this? I, I know a lot of you have attended churches, uh, or just it's. I think it's the original default value we think we have that if we if we try if we we know we've done a lot of things wrong, we violated the law part, and we try to make up for it by doing more good than bad. But I don't think you can. I don't think you're grasping the total depravity that you 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 are seen with. Here's another way of putting it. How do you? How do you receive the new covenant? 
You receive the new covenant like, like Abraham did. You, you receive the new covenant like Jesus talked about when he reflected back in the salvation of Israel when they were in the desert. He said, you remember the time when everybody was getting bit by vipers and they made this, this bronze snake and they put it on a post and they, it was high and lifted up? That was me. I am that snake that was high and lifted up. And if you just look at me with the faith that that would be a gift of salvation from God, you receive that gift. The baby of Abraham was a miracle gift from God. Salvation is a miracle gift from God. It is by faith that you look at Jesus' death and resurrection and you say, my bills are paid. That's how you receive the new covenant. It it has always been from forever. It has always been as a gift. It is by faith in the gift of God. So part one today, when we close things up on this series, is are you part of this new covenant? And and the the only way you can answer that is, have you put your faith in this gift of, of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to pay for your sins? It's not what you do It's what you put your faith in. God did everything. Part two. Many people, and I would even say most people, do not experience the abundant life. Jesus said, I came that that you might have life and have it abundantly. You are, I am yours and you are mine. I am here to bless you and so that you would live a joy-filled, not necessarily circumstantially good life, but a joy-filled life. A joy that transcends circumstances. I came that you might have life and have it full, he says. Most people don't. Most people that are followers of Jesus Christ don't. Why? There's the problem, right? For a lot of us, there's the rub. It's in this last part of the new covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. I am yours, and you are mine. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. Lose yourself in him. We don't experience the abundant life because we still think we are either reporting for duty or he's reporting for duty. We are either on a treadmill so that God will like us more and will pat us on the head and bless us, Or we are barking out orders and calling it prayer. You need to get a boyfriend for me or a job for me or a better house for me. We're tired of this manna in the desert. And there's, you know, I feel like if, if he were a husband and we were that wife, and we were complaining that the ring on our finger didn't have the big, big enough diamond, he, he would run over to us and he would grab us by the face and he'd say, but I love you. Isn't that enough? We don't experience the abundant life because we don't see it in this marital covenant love. I am my beloved. You are his beloved, and he is yours. And you you just swim, live, breathe. You experience that. And that's how the abundant life takes you places. 
It's not about a list of things so that he'll, so that he'll like you. And it's not a, a list of things for him to do for you. It is so self-forgetful because you're just focusing on his glory and, and, and beauty. And when you focus on his glory and beauty, then this, the things that you like and the things that you're obliged to do are the same thing. So, look, as we, let me just close this, okay, by saying this. You, two, two choices today. Everybody gets in on one of these, I'll bet. One, are you part of the new covenant? Are you still part of an old covenant that's based on rules and there's some kind of bills you have to pay somehow and you think you can make those payments? I hope today you've seen that the whole story of amazing grace is to provide a payment for your sins that you couldn't pay. You can't pay this bill. So would today, would you put your trust in, the, in Jesus Christ paying in full, in full and complete full, and you would receive the gift of salvation and the new covenant, his new spirit in your life? And then the second group, would you quit running errands for God, and would you quit having God run errands for you? Would you love God? Would you lose yourself? in his ocean of affection and see where that takes you. Uh, uh, it's not about you. It's about his beauty. Would you make that choice today? Enjoy the covenant love. It's bound by love, bound by law, so that we're safe to love God. He swore by his own name. Let's enjoy that. Where Jesus... Uh, for, the, for the people that uh, I walked in this auditorium thinking, oh, I'm getting closer to you, God, because I did something you want me to do. There's a point for me. I, I hope, God, that they've seen that they, there's not enough points. Not just that, but they would see that your son was the fulfillment of all the things that we should have done and could have done, but he did them, and yet he died. He died for a purpose. He died to pay my debt. Lord, if there's people here that have never put their full trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the payment of their sins, I, I'd ask, Lord, that this would be that day, that they'd become a child of God and inherit your spirit, and the law would be written on their soul. And, Lord, there's so many of us that don't experience the abundant life because we're... Um, we're too busy for a relationship with you. you know, we're too hard to care. Uh, we're too consumed with ourselves to think that there's something else in the universe, in our universe. And so, Lord, I'd ask that you would, your, your spirit that's written on our hearts would call us to so much more, that we would grow fatigued of constantly thinking of ourselves all the time that we would desire to think of nothing but you and your beauty and how we could do the things that we desire and the things that we're obliged to do would come together and your commandments would not be burdensome to us, that as a husband or a wife, we would try to out-love each other. Lord, let us be consumed with that marital love that you promised, this covenant love, this grace covenant love. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you.
The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac, the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. For more information about Grace, visit our website at grace360.org.